0: Katie Richie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here for this special holiday week episode. It's just me and our Hollywood correspondent Anthony Bresenkin. Hey Anthony. Hey guys. Merry Christmas.
2: Hey Katie. Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> uh,
0: we are gathering together before the holiday break. Don't worry. We are taking a little time off like uh, most of our colleagues. But we did some really fun interviews to share with the listeners this week. So we wanted to kind of get together and set them up. Uh, so first we're going to hear a conversation that I had with Sir Ronan, the star of Little Women. And then we're going to hear Anthony's interview with Roger Deakins, who is the cinematographer for 1917. But cinematographer kind of barely does justice to his massive uh, status within the film industry, I think. He
2: is the cinematographer. He is He's like, the guy. You know, the elder statesman. Mount guy.
0: Rushmore. But first, we're gonna hear the interview I did with Saoirse Ronan. Um, I love Little Women. We've talked about it a lot on this show. Uh, I was really excited to get to talk to Sersha about it. Um, Anthony, you were doing some reporting as well about um, men kind of failing in their duty to go see Little Women. Uh, so, as a man, you haven't been talking endlessly about Little Women. Uh, why? Why should people be seeing it this week and uh, before they maybe before or after they hear this interview with Sersha?
2: Well, the story I did was, uh, it was not, not, not about male moviegoers, but rather male voters in some of the guilds and like, uh, you know, the uh, like the Academy, Golden Globes, that the producers and distributors of Little Women, uh, they, they noticed that they weren't coming to see the movie, that they were getting RSVPs for full award season screeners uh, or screenings. Um, and they were two to one women instead of men. And as we know that there's been some work done on this, but most of the voting bodies of these groups are men. Yes. So they saw that as a warning sign, and then they had a really bad week, uh, awards-wise, with the Golden Globe nominations, basically recognizing Saoirse, and uh, it's like the, the the musical score, and I think that was it. And uh, then they got nothing at the Screen Actors Guild nominations, while I think a lot of people would say they really... Uh, although there are other worthy films out there really stood a good chance of getting that best ensemble, let alone some of the individual nominations, especially for Saoirse, who c- carries the film. But it's part of a, I, w- I think you would uh, agree, like a pretty great ensemble. Oh, it's it, called Little Women. Yes, it's it not Little Women, you know. Ensemble. <laughs> so, ensemble. Uh, so that was the story and uh, some of the challenges they had there. And a few people spoke up. Uh, Tracy Letts, who plays Mr. Dashwood, the editor-publisher in the movie, who... Really can't get his mind around what this book is that Joe March is proposing. And of course, the addition that Greta Gerwig has made to the story is it's framed by the idea that, that Joe is writing the story of Little Women. That 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 the uh, Louisa May Alcott story in this uh, in this version of the tale is uh, actually uh, being told by the uh, by the second eldest sister. So. She wrote it. She's trying to get it published. And this old man is like, I just don't get it. Should they need to get married? It needs to be this. It needs to be that. Sort of hammering it into into shape. It breaks too much with The Last Jedi. He doesn't like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, I spoke to him, and, and he was just uh, infuriated, the idea that, that guys wouldn't be giving this movie a chance. And he, he really spoke about how it's like the hero's journey for Joe. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and
2: uh, uh, that it's... Uh, it's. It is an. It's an exciting. It's a beautiful story. It's about goodness. I love that about the movie. I love that it's. It's about uh, trying to be decent and trying to help others and. And, and in addition to following your own dreams,
0: it's and not And how solid. hard that is, too, about how, like, because Joe, I think, struggles so much with, like, I just I'm trying to be nice and it sucks sometimes. And she has this great conversation with her mom, played by Laura Dern, who's like, yeah, I'm angry all the time, too. Um, so it's not just about, like, how these are great people, but, like, how these are great people who find it hard, even though they are, right, are doing exactly. the right thing. Exactly.
2: You know? And, um, I mean, and to me, I don't want to give away... Too Many spoilers. Is there such a thing as little women spoilers? I mean, I don't know.
0: My, I watched it with my husband who uh, did not know that Beth died, so uh, there he's oh the one, I guess.
2: He's like uh, Joey from Friends when he read Little Women, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Beth's real sick. I don't know what to do. Uh, but like the idea that you would ever forgive a sibling for burning your handwritten novel is oh, uh, I know, uh, I, don't know that I, I don't know that I could ever get past that. Well, but she okay. did like almost <laughs>
0: die in order for Joe to forgive her, so you know, mm, it got know. pretty dramatic.
2: I guess. Uh, But anyway, that's the situation. It's hopefully evolving and changing. And uh, I think what needs to happen now is just word of mouth that people need to be told. Look, it's called Little Women. It's a classic story. We certainly, women, have enjoyed uh, stories of of young men and boys having adventures over the years. And uh, I think this story of young women coming together and uh, trying to exist and pursue their dreams and ambitions in a time when that was not allowed is... uh, it's one of the reasons this book has endured and, and certainly uh it's manifested in this movie. And I hope people will give it a chance. It's really fun and beautiful.
0: Yeah, well it's I fun, mean it's I funny think...
2: too. There's a lot of humor in it. Oh and yeah. It's it's interesting. It's not a drag.
0: Yeah. It's well, not, and hopefully this, you know, this right. episode's airing over the holiday week where I think a lot of people listening to this might have screeners or Little Women is playing in theaters. So it, it is this is kind of the moment where it's like, all right, maybe like something else was getting your attention or like you thought this was quote unquote not for you, which as Tracy lets tell you is ridiculous. Um, but hopefully people are catching up with it. Um, so we have this interview that I did with Saoirse Ronan where we talked about Little Women and kind of the, the process of making it and how they all got together for these rehearsals and what that process of learning was, like how she, she and Florence Pugh knew each other socially beforehand, which I found fascinating. And she had this really close working relationship with Jacqueline Duran, who was the costume designer, uh, which you can really mm. see the costumes in this movie are phenomenal and just tell a lot of the story. I think Greta Gerwig has talked a lot about how Joe and Laurie, played by Timothy Chalamet, will swap clothing throughout, kind of to indicate the level and depth of their friendship. Um, and that was kind of part of the development of the character from the very beginning. That's Um, But I also talked to her about, like, her growing up as a child actor and, like, kind of looking back on the work that she did and, like, whether or not she feels like she's the same actor she was when she was 13, when she was in Atonement, um, and got into one of my pet subjects. If you listen to the show a lot, I talk about, you know, kids being nominated for Oscars or being taken to the Oscars and how it always looks like they would rather be at home doing something else. Um, And she had an interesting perspective on it, which is, like, when she went to the Oscars when she was 13, she was in the middle of production on The Lovely Bones. And when she went back to set, like, the day after the Oscars, she went and filmed like the scene where her character gets murdered in the lovely bones. So for her, the Oscars were fun, even as a 13-year-old, because it was like that or like doing a murder scene. But um, don't you
2: also find that many kids who are acting and performing at that level, they're very non-kidlike. Yes. Uh, and and grown up in in a way like that, you know, you wouldn't expect like a child to be. Yes. And I'm curious how you found her demeanor. It's been a few years since I spoke to her and she's now like is she now in her She's
0: like 25, 20s, maybe, yeah. Mid-20s?
2: Yeah. <clears throat> I, I interviewed her uh, when Hannah came out. If you guys remember that, oh, that was the... Oh,
0: Hannah's amazing.
2: I think it has to be a, at least about eight or nine years ago now, and she was, uh, that was like the assassin. She played like this young girl who was trained as an assassin. It's now like, an, I think, like a, a TV series. an Amazon
0: but, series, yeah.
2: Yeah, but she played that part, and I remember interviewing her, and it was, I felt like she was just on the edge of like, like, being a kid, being a teenager, and really charting her own course as an actress, as opposed to being a kid who gets wonderful opportunities, like, but deciding for herself who she wanted to be as a performer. Mm-hmm. What, what what, did she tell you about, like, that journey from child actress to... Uh... To, to, to grown up.
0: Actors. What she said was really interesting is that she felt like she was making choices like that from the very beginning, which is not mm-hmm. really what I expected. Like, you know, she had auditioned for something else in addition to atonement and the other thing might've been bigger, but she wanted to take atonement because she wanted to make those kinds of movies and kind of knew that about herself, which I think explains a lot about the career that she's had because she's worked yeah. with a phenomenal directors. She's really very rarely made a bad movie. And I think she has good parents who have like really helped her through that process. And she really credits like her mom for being with her every step of the way. Um, um, but I think she had that kind of like sense of knowing what she wanted to do. Like, even though she's evolved as an actor, and I think has like what she said is like shaken off a lot of the process that she had when she was younger, mm-hmm. um, that kind of sense of direction has really stuck with her. And I think, you know, explains why her career's been so great.
2: Yeah. At the time I spoke to her, uh, I mean, I guess maybe that's just always been on her mind. And uh, as always, even when she was very young, because when I spoke to her, it was there was a question of whether she was going to be in the Hobbit. Movies. Oh,
0: I don't remember and, that at uh, all.
2: <laughs> yeah, and she was, uh, I think, considered or the maybe the first choice. It's, this is all. Whenever you get a different actor in the part, it's always like, no, no, This was our first yeah, choice the course. whole time. You know. Uh, but like, I, I think she was up for the part that Evangeline Lilly eventually played. Uh-huh. And uh, she wasn't sure that she was going to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe she chose not to and and chose other things instead. And yeah. so. Um, I thought she was a very interesting person, like really fun, really cool. She was very creative. I think she was drawing and like, if I'm remembering correctly, like into music and had like cool bracelets and things like that. Like she was very, uh almost like incessantly creative
0: yeah well and she just she seems like the kind of person you know an interview is a somewhat formal setting and she was in a studio in London so we weren't in the same room but she seems like someone that if you got to hang out with in a more relaxed situation would be incredibly fun and I feel that way about Greta Gerwig too like they could all just be my friends obviously um so I can kind of see why they're um why they've built such an amazing connection over these two movies and hopefully many 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 more to come um all right let's should we listen to the interview
2: I'm dying to him. I'm asking you all these questions about it. Let's listen to (laughs) it.
0: So we had Greta uh, on this podcast a couple weeks ago, um, talking to one of my colleagues about the process of making this movie. And she told the story of how you basically uh, pulled her aside and said, I'm going to play Joe Marsh for you. And what Greta said is that you, you told her that you'd never done anything like that before. Is that true? Was this a, a first time kind of demanding a role like that?
1: Yeah, I had never done anything like that. I had never kind of actively pursued um, a role myself. Because, um, you know, so often it's your agents that will go out to different people and say, give her a job or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But I suppose because I I knew her and um, we had had such a special experience making Ladybird together and, and we were still in the middle of... of all of the press for that that I just sort of thought I I didn't even think about actually I was just sort of like I need to let you know that if you're going to make Little Women I need to be in it and the only part I can play is Joe. so (laughs) (laughs) so that's sort of what happened and then she took about a week to think about it and eventually she she said that I could be in it so yeah
0: well, Greta said it was a very Joe thing to do, to kind of yeah. uh, stake your claim like that. But it also feels kind of like a Ladybird thing to me to kind of step up and maybe even act more confident than you really are. Which yeah. you feel like both of them are kind of speaking through there.
1: I mean, yeah, I suppose you're right. I, I think if anything, it felt like Louisa May Alcott. Just her spirit was like was was coming through me because, as I'm sure Greta told you, when she pitched the idea for Little Women to Sony, the studio that made it, and um, she hadn't made Ladybird yet she had only written the draft for this and I, I think was going to go off and make Lady Bird afterwards and and so she was originally just supposed to write Little Women and she told them that she would also be directing it <laughs> they were like yeah. okay um, and yeah and so the, I don't know I mean people feel strongly about this book and they feel very connected to this story and um, you know I think what's very exciting about this version is that really all the girls are, are given a chance to show to shine but certainly with jo March she is so beloved and um and therefore louisa is as well and and i guess there' was you do sort of feel an ownership with with the story because everyone's grown up with it you know yeah.
0: Well, um, we also asked Greta if she kind of felt the spirit of Louisa on the set in Concord. And, you know, I know you all visited her grave and I think Greta's response was like, yes, but I don't want to sound like a lunatic. So give you the chance. <laughs> Did you feel like there was like some spiritual connection to Louisa May Alcott when you guys were on the set kind of around her childhood home and where she lived?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly when we were rehearsing and we were in Concord's um, we spent time in the graveyard where Louisa is buried, and we spent a lot of time in Orchard House, um, and the, you know the the March House in the movie is is basically a replica of the orchard house where louise actually lived. Mm. so so yeah there was there was definitely a connection there. i don't know if i felt like her ghost. um but i <laughs> but laura did. <laughs> laura you know I, I think it's something that that mothers experience more so than maybe um younger mm. people. i've noticed that a lot of mothers i know include my own have this sort of like sixth sense and feel very connected to maybe things you can't see and I remember when we went to Orchard House for the first time Laura just like stopped and was like I can feel her. She's here. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So she must have been kicking about somewhere. But like when you go and you see her headstone, um, it's this very sort of humble little headstone with her name on it. And there's just, it's going to make me cry even thinking about it. There's like, there's just hundreds of pens uh, placed mm-hmm. around her grave. And I think even just seeing that, uh, even if if you couldn't quite feel her her spirit, you you know you you could you could when you essentially saw it kind of laid out in front of you how much people love her and how important she yeah. is to people. So when
0: so you talked to Greta, you know while promoting Lady Bird. If I've got my math right, it's maybe like eight months between that and then when you guys go into production on Little Women, like it's not very long. No. So are you guys in touch in that process? Are you kind of like you know, helping develop the role at all? Or do you kind of like both go your separate ways and you get back together on set and say, okay, the the collaboration starts anew.
1: I think we probably took a little bit of a break um after that I think we both needed to unwind after all the ladybird madness and she was also yeah. she she just like went to a cabin for like 6 weeks and started to work on on the script um so we stayed in touch you know every few weeks and she would send me ideas or thoughts or references that she had found um But one of the things that we did start to do sort of early on was Greta would come over to London because so many of the cast are based here. And we would work with Jacqueline Duran, who's the costume designer, brilliant, 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 brilliant costume designer. And she um, works quite a bit in this place called Sands Theatre in London, which is actually where we... Rehearsed Atonement, um, and Jacqueline also worked on that as well. So it's this very, very special place. It's been around for a very, very long time. And um, lots of actors have kind of come in and out of this place, and it's just lovely to be there. And so Greta would come over and She would do fittings with us and and we did quite a bit together. And and I think Jacqueline and I, more than anything, were staying in touch uh, during that time. Jacqueline would send Hmm. me swatches of different fabrics that she had thought of using. We talked about colours and shapes and I had this thought one day that it would be really great if we could find like a military jacket for Joe to wear because Joe says all the time in the book and in in the movie that she wishes that she was a boy she wishes she could go to war and she could fight Mm -hmm. with her father and when you look back at Louise's story, there was such a thing about her really feeling like she needed to impress her father and get his approval, which she kind of didn't get for, for well, until she was a success. Uh, so go figure. But um, mm. but I found <laughs> that interesting for her to put on this sort of armour and that was her way of, of kind of fighting the good fight, you know, so she would put it on any time she would write and that was her way to to make some sort of contribution, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Have you worked closely with costume designer, with Jacqueline or anyone else to develop a character like that before? Or was that unique to this?
1: Um, Jacqueline is is very much um, a collaborator. She's she's really incredible. I mean, I, I had worked with her when I was younger. So I think this experience mm-hmm. was even more um, intimate for the two of us, more collaborative. And, and she always um, focuses on who that character is and really allows you to you know, once you've got the framework for the character, she really kind of gives you free rein to to make certain decisions. So I would say like, oh God, should I wear this thing or should I wear that? Or what do you think? She's like, well, I don't know. What do you think? And mm-hmm. you don't get that with, with many costume designers. Another person that I have loved working with is Alex Byrne, who did the costume design on Mary Queen of Scots. And I started to work with her months and months in advance um, and, you know, I knew nothing about the period, but she was doing something quite different and quite cool with um, mm-hmm. with the colours and stuff. And again, it was coming from a very uh, emotional place like, like Jacqueline. So you don't get it on every job, but, um, you know, I'm certainly not someone who likes someone to just put clothes on me and, and kind of be their mannequin. So it's always, it's always lovely to, to feel like it's a conversation that we're, that we can all have together, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, you talk about you and some of the other cast being based in London. I assume that you and Emma Watson must have known each other somehow just because you've both been working for so long. Um, but did you know Florence? Did you know Eliza? Like what's the, you guys are all the the non-Americans jumping in to play these American icons. So I figure you must have, uh, did at least connect on that beforehand.
1: Yeah, um, I, I hadn't met Eliza before. I actually hadn't seen Sharp Objects. I knew she was in Sharp Objects and I watched it while we were making the film, which was a big mistake because she's crazy <laughs> That's a pretty in that different show. Character. <laughs> and I had like gone away for the weekend and watched it, watched like the whole season on the plane and I came back on Monday and like I couldn't even look at her because I was like disgusted <laughs> with her. Um, so I So I didn't know Eliza from before. Flo and I had met a couple of times through friends and Emma and I had like randomly danced together at like a, a, like a met ball party or something like that. <laughs> and um and and Timmy and I obviously obviously knew each yeah. other. So, you know, it was uh, I think what's what's nice about you know if uh, the few of us that that were a little bit younger is is that we've we've kind of been you know doing bits and bobs over the last few years and we have some sort of connection to one another whether we have mutual friends in common or we've worked with the same people or we've met each other ourselves like it, we were all aware of who the other one was and everyone else's mm-hmm. work so I think that helped
0: yeah, and you had this process uh, of kind of rehearsing beforehand. I think you guys were in Concord, or you know, at least all together. And mm-hmm. um, Greta kind of compared it to the Pickwick Club in, in the movie and in the book where you're kind of getting there, like, playing together and acting things out for each other. And yeah. um, you know, it sounds like drama school almost. So, I mean, what what was that process like from your end of having, of having a rehearsal process that was maybe unique compared to anything else you'd done?
1: It's great. I mean, the reason why it was unique more than anything else is because we had two weeks to rehearse and you, like, never yeah. get that on a job anymore unless you've got a lot of uh, money for a film um, yeah. or you're doing a play you just you just don't get that kind of rehearsal and I, I mean I remember when I was younger doing Atonement we had three weeks of rehearsals it was incredible wow. yeah it, but it was amazing and like if I was making something I think I would probably give up a few days of shooting in order to have more rehearsal because mm-hmm. it just means that by the time you start on day one you're not like kind of still finding your feet or like I'm still a little bit unsure of this thing like everyone's so on the same page you've had two weeks with not you know a massive amount of pressure to to work together to drill the scenes with one another but also just to get to know one another and, and be around each other for like you know 10 hours at a time Um and that has a huge impact on your work. I've always found when when there's been jobs that I've done where you have like a couple of days or four days and, and you know, it's fine and you knuckle down and, and you get to it. But to not go in with that kind of extra nervous energy and to really feel like everyone has just had their time to like... I don't know, settle into it before you've even started is great. So, I mean, the very first scene that we shot, it was actually a pre-shoot day, um, <laughs> but it was a shoot day. Um, but the very first scene that we shot was the scene with myself and Eliza on the beach. It was the two scenes mm-hmm. that we had on the beach, which are very, you know, they're they are very um, important scenes for the movie. And I think if we hadn't had that time to rehearse, I would have been, you know, shaking like a leaf going into it. But because Eliza and I had been together every day and we had drilled scenes together, we had done etiquette lessons together, like all these different things, (laughs) we were, we were fine. We already felt very close. So.
0: Well, and I assume Lady Bird, because Lady Bird was such a smaller movie that you wouldn't have had time like that. You know, it's a similarly intimate vibe, but I mean, that's such an interesting transformation. You go back to work together again with Greta and Timmy Mm. and like, and the circumstances have changed so much.
1: Well, this is it. I mean, Lady Bird has, has it has had a massive impact on our lives and um, it's this tiny movie that you know we had like four days rehearsals on that or something like that and it was just this little gem that has really touched so many people and and it's such a good movie and, and I got such a kick out of coming back to do Little Women and being with Greta again and, and Timothy but, but, you know, for Greta and I to come back together and, and see this, like, massive movie studio behind her and she had... You know, she had more money to play with, um, and uh, fantastic heads of department. And not that we didn't on Ladybird, mm-hmm. but but you know, it was a, on a much bigger scale. And I was like, "Damn, girl, you're <laughs> you're killing it!" <laughs> you know, it, it was only two years ago that we we were scrambling to like make sure that we made our day, we we shot for like I don't know twenty th- something days or something like that, and it's. It's just amazing. And I think it's just a, it's a testament to, to Greta's ability and her her gift as a filmmaker, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems so clear how Lady Bird gave her all these resources to kind of step up as a filmmaker. But I'm curious about how it impacted your life, because, you know, you, did, you had a somewhat established career at this point, like you, know, you nominated for another Oscar for it. But what what's the tangible impact it's had for you just career wise or life wise?
1: Um I mean I think career wise there was something about me playing like a modern American girl somebody who mm-hmm. even though it it wasn't set in present day it was the 90s it was it was a girl and it was a, it was a time period that everybody could relate to who was gone to see it even somebody who was my age who was only born in the 90s um yeah. and I it, it was it was like comedy is my absolute favorite genre. It's always been the thing that I've loved the most, and even just to get to touch on that a little bit and do something that was uh, quirky and witty and had funny moments in it, like that was something that mm-hmm. I hadn't done since I was about eleven. And it's my it's my favorite type of film. So it was a it was a scary thing for me to do because it was something that I really 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 didn't want to mess up. Um but yeah i think it was it was a film that really spoke to my generation slightly younger and a little bit older as well and um and i think just that whole notion of like families that struggle and families that try and put on a brave face to the outside world but they're they're really finding it hard and and, and again it, it's interesting i only realized it when when we started to talk about how little women is so much about money and commerce and yeah. art. Ladybird focuses a lot on money too and um a person's relationship to it, you know? And how you kind of can't really let that take over your life. I mean, there's so many I don't know, there's so many situations in Ladybird where she really she she chooses like appearances over what's really important because she's a kid and it was also yeah. just it was very nice to play somebody who who, you know just had so much about them that was a bit like oh, oh god I wouldn't do that or oh god I wish I <laughs> could do that you know she yeah. she really was not perfect and so personally that was that was very uh, fun for me to play and, and I think people sort of realised when they watched a character like that on screen like oh we've needed that you know
0: yeah. Well, how much? I, I, mean, you talk about playing a modern American girl and people seeing you differently. Like how much of that, you know, starting with Atonement and then in Brooklyn and or Mary Queen of Scots even like has played into kind of the work that you've been able to do or the work that you want to do. Like, do you feel a conscious sense of being like, okay, I, I will take apart, take a part That's a good part, but like mm. wanting to expand out into what people maybe think that you want to do or that you can do.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, uh... The, there isn't like a massive strategy when it comes to like where I want to go or whatever but i definitely have this sort of loose i don't know what you'd call it sort of outline i suppose for for mm. what i would like to try next so like the last couple of things i've done have been period i i, I think it's it's wise that i don't do a period film next um mm-hmm. because because of because of you know the obvious reasons but also um i think language wise and what you're able to do physically and what you're able to do with your look and all of that sort of stuff um i want to explore that a little bit more next so it's it's more about what i feel i need um you know I've, I've i've done this sort of thing for a bit so i'll i'll go off and try and do something completely different but you know you are you, you do also have to kind of be aware that like your work at the end of the day is part of entertainment for other people. They go to the cinema and maybe they'll go and see work that you're in. And if you're in everything, uh, I know I do, when I see someone who's in absolutely everything, I'm like, can you just go away for a little bit? <laughs> 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 so I'm aware of those things because I know that that's how I think. Um and and I agree with it, you know. Um, I agree with how I think, but I mean, I agree with that thing <laughs> of like you shouldn't be everywhere all the time, and um, mm. and so yeah. So so there's things like that that sort of motivate my decisions but at the end of the day I mean you know I say all this but I could I could read a script tomorrow and again it's set in the 1800s and it's something that I really really (laughs) love so you, you just you just don't know but I I have found it's important to kind of hold on to a little bit of a structure at least
0: do you, have you had that sense of structure since you started or when you, when you start when you're so young do you kind of kind of go in for a whole lot of different reasons and then have to figure that out as you you know become an adult and are able to take charge of your own career in that way
1: No weirdly I've always had that. Um I hmm. I it's always been obviously an emotional choice more than anything else. Like if I've decided to do well, one of the things that I am very happy about is that I've had so many people around me who have like protected me and really supported me but since I was like 12 it's always been my decision to do a certain thing um, mm-hmm. so like even when I got Atonement I had also gotten this other thing that you know could have potentially been like a more commercial thing and it would have been more money or whatever and it would have been this big kind of Hollywood thing and I knew when I was a kid that that wasn't the kind of film that I wanted to be in um i knew i wanted to be in this beautiful british independent thing with these great actors and this great director with a great character and you know cuz i had i had grown up watching good movies and i wanted to be in the good ones um as much yeah. as possible so yeah so i've kind of always had that that sense a bit of like no mm, I, I don't want to go down this path this is the kind of way that i want to go for a bit and you know
0: I yeah do, yeah when you look at the performances that you gave at that point or even, you know, five years ago or six years ago, like, do you recognize the same performer? Or do you feel like you've <laughs> really changed the way that you approach acting since you first started?
1: That's a good question. Um, I think at my core, I'm still the same. Like when I was doing Brooklyn, because it was the first time in like a good few years where I was leading something and, and it was an Irish film. And I knew that like if it was done right, it would be such a proud moment for us all. So I was naturally mm-hmm. terrified um, and I i remember I would call my mum up and I was so lucky I had like John Crowley and I had all these brilliant people with me but I'd call my mum up and I was like I, I feel like I have i can't get back to that thing that I had when I was a kid where you'd just sort of float onto set and it was just, you'd just let it kind of all happen to you and you wouldn't overthink mm-hmm. it and you know and I did go through that thing of like feeling like oh god have I have I lost that and I remember once I had kind of broken through that fear a little bit and and you know continued to kind of do really cool projects and stuff that went away and I was only speaking to someone about this a while ago like after doing Brooklyn and Ladybird two things that I was very very scared of doing and then doing like a, a play on Broadway and and then doing Mary Queen of Scots which was a project that I had been attached to for 5 years and really felt like a, a collaborator on it i was like okay i'm kind of like i'm settling a little bit now and i and mm. i was a little bit i felt just in myself that i was a little bit looser than than i had ever been before growing up, but I was finding the the kind of fun in it again. And then by the time it came around to Little Women, I was like, I just want to have fun with it. Just let me at it. So and you know there'll be takes that I that I'll do that won't be perfect, and and that's kind of alright because I I speak to actors who also started when they were young and there's definitely this thing that we all have where we're sort of like still is good <laughs> we'll be still <laughs> and that'll be good and and you know you you need you need your rules when you're starting out and you really need your structure to learn your craft and to get better at it and and to sort of um practice and then I think when you've been doing that for long enough and and you've been trying to you know hit those beats I suppose as much as you can whatever's been set out for you you kind of just start to like ease up on it just a tiny tiny bit and kind of go kind of kind of like when you cook a dish and you're not following the recipe exactly but you're kind of going I'm going to put a, a few few chilli flakes in there or, you know, throw a little bit of garlic in even though it's not in the recipe because I think, you know, it could taste nice, who knows. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, and so I suppose it's just something that comes with with experience and, and, and I can see actors like Meryl and Laura and they've been doing it for, you know, their whole lives or at least their whole adult lives and you can see they just... Like they're good and they and they know they're they're good, which is so brilliant to see, and they're just like having fun doing it, you know. So you can kind of feel that sinking in a little bit more, I think, as you get older. Yeah. Well,
0: it's it's funny seeing you and Florence Pugh, you know, in this movie together because you're about the same age, but she's had this really like breakout series of films recently and mm. hasn't been acting on film as long as you have. And you both are experienced and incredibly talented, but that I feel like that level of experience might be really interesting to just watch kind of play out that yeah. you have been seeing yourself on film since you were a teenager. She hasn't been, but here you are in the same place kind of bringing performances to the same film. It's it's great to watch at least.
1: Yeah, it is. Like, we, you know, I, I suppose that's the great thing about about any Kind of art form is that you're all coming to it from from different backgrounds and you've all got different experiences. You know, I mean, because Flo was doing performing arts when she was in school, that wasn't something that I was doing. I was on set, and and mm-hmm. Eliza was in school, and and Timmy was in Laguardia, and like, um, and then there's other people that you meet. Like, I, I think the actor Sam Riley is one of these people that was literally just sort of like found in a school or like on the street or something um, <laughs> and he was he was put in control of the film about Joy Division so everyone's coming at it from a slightly different angle and it makes it very exciting and I mean there's things that because I love working with kids on set there's things I learn from kids you know that are just as profound as what I would learn from actors who have been doing it for a very long time because what we're, as older actors, what we're all trying to hold on to is the purity that you have when you're a child and that mm-hmm. that feeling that you can totally let go to your imagination and you can be completely uninhibited when you're when you're creating something and, and you're not conscious of it you're just literally playing and that's something that we're all desperately trying to hold on to and I know that like when I was doing Brooklyn I was like I have to hold on to that thing because I know that that's that's what the thing is you know um, so it's, it's wonderful to be to have grown up with people who are in their 50s, who are in their 20s, who are five years old, who are a baby or like 90 or whatever. And you're all bringing your own thing to it. It's very exciting. Do you feel
0: particularly like uh, like you need to look out for kids who you're in movies with? You know, for people who looked out for you when you were younger, you have to pay it forward and, uh, and help them out?
1: Yeah, I do, and um, that's something that I I do feel very very strongly about. Because you know, I I was very lucky that I was I was so taken care of, definitely by my parents, and my mum who came with me everywhere. She was the the most amazing chaperone um I could have asked for, and everybody always loved her on set. But I also worked with wonderful. Actors like Juno Temple and James McAvoy, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Guy Pearce, Stanley Tucci, Rachel Weisz, like Susan Sarandon, all these amazing people. When I was young, and I'll never forget how kind they were to me and how much time they gave me. Um, and I know how important that was for me as somebody who was a child in 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 an adult's environment, really. Um, and so, yeah. So I'm very, very protective over over kids on set and just young people in general because i think the the gorgeous thing about kids is that they're so willing to do anything and they'll never kind of mm. say no and in the wrong hands that's obviously That is taken advantage of, so I'm kind of always on the lookout for it whenever I'm (laughs) whenever I'm on set because that's what my mom did with me. I had her, and and I know that not everybody has has a Monica with them. So (laughs)
0: yeah, well, so every time I watch the Oscars or award shows and I see kids who are you know nominated or attending with a movie, I always wonder if it's any fun to be in these really adult spaces when you're that young. And I'm curious for you when you were 13 and at the Oscars, was it fun or did you like wish that you were at school with whatever your friends were up to that day?
1: I didn't wish I was at school. I mean I, I um I was doing the lovely bones at the time. So I was in New Zealand. <laughs> so school was still working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was with the tutor <laughs> and Stanley Ducci. Um uh like the scene that I was going back to do after the Oscars, straight after the Oscars, was the scene where Susie Salmon, my character, is uh is killed oh, in the yeah. underground. So it it was it was quite intense, but it was so much fun there and that and that was kind of all I wanted to do. Like I think Back then, for me the Oscars was um a thing that I would watch on the telly. Like it, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was I, I would tune in every single year, I would watch it on the TV, I was so excited to, to see everyone get up and make their speeches. I remember when I was younger and Reese with spoon won, and I was so excited for her that she had won for Walk <laughs> the Lion and um and so that's sort of what it was back then. I think now it's 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 obviously the the last award show of of the year so everyone is like yay and uh, everyone's <laughs> sort of letting loose a little bit more and um yeah. and it's it, it's it's lovely and it's the academy and it's it's a group of, of people who who really respect film and um, film is something that is very, very important to them. And I think if you're if when when you're older and you understand that you're being recognized by people that you've either worked with in film or just people that you really look up to in film, that is wonderful. Um you know, and it, like a few years ago when we were there, and Fran McDormand won, like that to me, that was that is what the Oscars should be. That is what any award show should be. Where, yes, somebody will win, but it's also an opportunity to go. Like we are a community of filmmakers, um, yeah. and we're all here to highlight our work and to celebrate our work, um, and that's what in particular that year. That's what that felt like, and I thought it was so incredible that she she did that and she this was her moment and if you want to get up there and just be like oh my god thank you so much but the fact that she was able to share it with us and everyone else in the room i think was so amazing so
0: well, was that the year, if I remember correctly, that, you know, there was a picture of you and Margot Robbie and Sally Hawkins and Meryl, I think, all together, like in a group hug or like some kind of group photo, like this bonding moment mm. that was captured that was really uh, striking for all the rest of us to see?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was that was at the Oscars and we knew that she was planning something, but we didn't know exactly what it was going to be. And it was just kind of exhilarating to... to to have that moment to share with these actresses that you had gone to every party with, every award show with, every Q&A with, you'd done every panel with them. Margot and I had done Mary Queen of Scots together. Like, it was, it was lovely. It was so nice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Sorsha. And it was, I'm really glad we got to talk about that group hug photo because I have treasured
1: it since then, so. <laughs> Yeah, <it's> good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and thank you. And congratulations on Little Women. I love it. And I was, been really excited to get to talk to all of you guys about oh, it. So thank you. Thank you. Okay, Anthony, now we're going to uh, hear your interview with Roger Deakins. Um, As we were saying before, he is a cinematographer who has really achieved this legend status. He was like famously nominated for so many Oscars for so long before he won. He won for Blade Runner 2049 a couple years ago. Uh, Now he's working on 1917, which to say something is technically impressive for Roger Deakins is a pretty high bar since he's done incredible things. But this really is like a new level for him, right?
2: Yeah, and I think it runs the risk of coming off as a gimmick, this notion that it's a single-take film. It's not really. It's obviously many takes, but woven together to look like an unbroken perspective following these two soldiers as they uh, get their orders to send a message to uh, another group of thousands of soldiers who are about to go into a battle that's a trap. So this is obviously... Spoiler alert from the title, the year 1917, where you can't just tweet or send a text. So you've got to send two guys. There are no phone lines. There's no way to communicate with these people who are about to die if they follow through with their marching orders at dawn. So uh, these two boys essentially have to cross a brutal battlefield. They have to go through a town. They have to, you know, over the hills and through the woods to get to this um, Uh, this commander who can halt Mm -hmm. the assault and the idea that it's a single take that's been tried a few times in the past it's hard for one so it doesn't get attempted a lot alfred hitchcock tried it with rope and that was all sort of a self-contained story within basically a single room with some very big columns so that when the cameras (laughs) swept by hmm, you know, you could cut
0: also with uh, very you know. different technology than what um, these guys had access yes. to.
2: Yes, the part of the, the Hitchcock's problem with that movie is you couldn't move the cameras fast enough to create different compositions. Mm-hmm. So you were basically just rolling around, following things, but you couldn't um, you couldn't push in and pull out and go up and and go through the way you can now. Partly because it's easier to mask the cuts, um, but also even on this film. Uh, Deakins uh, helped develop a, a new type of camera that he'll go into detail about. I I couldn't speak to the specifications of it, but a, a smaller, more nimble camera that still creates a, a vast cinematic canvas, but you can just fit it into smaller places and move it a little easier. It's that movement that gives the film its quote unquote cuts, not not where the seams are between when the actors stop and start a new thing, but, but actually creating Portraits within the film, uh, two shots, one shots, sky shots, uh, you know, panoramas that you get on the screen and you feel your eye moving. But you don't. Um, you can't do that if you if you have a, a camera that weighs, the, you know, the size of a Toyota, yeah. so <laughs> the weight we just, of a So We just
0: don't think about mm-hmm. cameras and their like physical limitations that much. I mean, that's been part of mm-hmm. Hollywood from the very beginning, like in silent films, because the camera, the, you know, they start having sound and the cameras are too loud. Like there's Sings and singing in the Rain, all about that. Um, and you know, now we have our iPhone cameras and like they can do just about anything. But it's for making a just movie. About. It really is still a consideration.
2: Yeah, you've got to have a camera person, you know, a camera operator moving it. At, at some points, like, going through mud, you mm-hmm. know? Obviously, they lay down, like, you know, stones or boards or something so they don't trip. But you've got to make sure you're moving, you're keeping the focus. Then, you know, that person seamlessly attaches to a crane and then that... Or the camera attaches to a crane and then sweeps over uh, a body of water, a little lake full of dead bodies, like, <laughs> to, to, you know, to track these two guys. And, and like, it's... It's actually choreography, you know? It, the camera movements are choreography that are capturing acting. And the stuff he talked about there, like, that's what we understand. But then he also gets into very specific things. Like, I think the the aspect of lighting that a cinematographer does is one thing that we often overlook. We think so much about the camera operation and the framing and the portraiture, but the lighting is a major part of that. And he, one of the most interesting things he talked to me about was how they created lighting in a night scene that uh, involves flares flying overhead that involves our heroes being stalked and uh, by enemy soldiers in a in a burned out bombed out town mm-hmm. uh, where the church that's at the center of it is a raging inferno. And the you know, the magic trick here is the church is the one thing that doesn't exist. The fire, isn't there mm. that's an effect that's added uh, the church actually is what he, what sam mendes described to me at a Q&A I did with these guys uh right the day before we did this interview uh he described it as the starship from the end of close encounters of the third kind if you remember that thing that just like it was just looked like uh looked like a giant bowl with like uh <laughs> th- that had been wrapped in like uh uh, string after string of Christmas lights. <laughs> so this <laughs> thing they created I remember that from
0: was- um, behind the scenes of Skyfall too. Like at the very end of Skyfall, the um, you know the the mansion catches on fire, and there's mm-hmm. these behind the scenes shots of like Daniel Craig standing in front of just like stacks of these lights that look like they're from a you know football stadium. Um, to, and that is going to be CGI'd in as the fire, but they have mm-hmm. to create the light actually. So even though there's computer effects being used for it, the light has to exist in the real world to make it look right.
2: Exactly. So um, so that's what they did and they had to light this whole town. They had to build a town, they built a model of the town and then figured out where the camera needed to move in order for the light to hit the actors just the right way as they as they ran through. So then they, that's how they determined which parts of the town were, would be bombed out, is which way the light would from the burning t- from the burning church would cast on them. And, and so it's all really fascinating. Um, I can't recommend this movie enough. Uh, we were just talking about little women. I can't recommend that movie enough too both of these are what are, are wonderful films about oh, people with a lot of heart and daring and uh i i think uh after you see 1917 you're really going to want to know like how they did that yeah but as you're watching it those questions really fall away occasionally occasionally i'll be like oh man how do they how do they get from there to there I yeah can't tell how they did that well but-
0: they're not really- trying to mask the cuts like you know it's not it's supposed to look like one take but it's not like you know you see the camera move behind a tree trunk and you're like okay I lost where the cut was like it's not trying to fool you in a way that I think would make it feel more gimmicky it, it feels more like um inherent to the action in the story
2: I don't know about that I think there are a lot of cuts that you are want
0: but, but no that's so probably can. true but it's not yeah. it, it's what I can I notice when it like takes a breath to kind of shift into a new part of it um, mm-hmm. and it just—it didn't feel like it was trying to be like, oh, I don't know, maybe it all is one take. Like, they've been kind of frank about yeah. the work that goes into it, and and it, I didn't mind it as much. Like, I didn't feel like I was trying to be tricked. I felt like I was being, like, immersed into the world the way that I think they wanted me to.
2: A lot of the cuts happen with doorways. Like, they'll go through an archway or something, uh-huh. and, that, and that's, like, actually when they pass through, that's the cut. Yeah. But, you, but it never... There's never a moment where the whole screen gets wiped. Uh, probably a few of those, a little bit, like, with fences and things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, you know, effects shots when a character dives off of a off of a cliff into a river. <laughs> You're um, saying that doesn't happen? I'm going to say, like, that's an opportunity for a cut, yeah. you know? The yeah. big splash, so...
0: Um, anyway, yeah, I, I too could not recommend 1917 enough. The 1917 and Little Women are incredibly different movies, which is part of why it's fun to have them on the same episode. Um, but you know, they're also, I think, the visions of directors like Sam Mendes and Greta Gerwig both had really specific takes on these stories from the past and, and make them feel really fresh and vital um, in a way that maybe even people who don't necessarily want to see period pieces will be engaged by.
2: Well, and in thematically, in the broadest possible strokes, uh, it's both of these movies are about um, what we owe ourselves and what we owe other people. Like, what, hmm. at what point do you put aside your safety or your dreams for uh, for others? And sometimes you do do that because you love them and you care about them and you want to be kind and helpful. And sometimes you have to stand up and say, "No, I I deserve this. Yeah. I'm, you know, this. I have to look look out for myself." and um, And each movie is about that tug of war in the human heart.
0: That's a great way to put it. Um, Let's listen to your conversation with Roger Deakins.
2: So, Roger, I'm wondering where you think is a good place to begin talking about your work on 1917. I know it was intense and very collaborative with director Sam Mendes and, you know, the production designer, Dennis Gassner, and and so many members of the crew. As this project came together, what was the first conversation, or the earliest conversations you remember having with Sam about what he was embarking on here?
3: Um, well, I talked to Sam very, very early on, actually, before most people came on board really, I think. Um, we just had sort of a general conversation about the concept. And then we started doing sort of storyboards. We worked with a storyboard artist and just started sketching out ideas of uh, how we felt the camera could uh, move, and just ideas, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then other people came on board, and it just became a a bigger and bigger sort of circle of, uh, as you say, collaborative sort of process.
2: Was there anything you knew or had learned from other projects that attempted something similar to this? I know, you know, going back decades, Alfred Hitchcock tried to make a film uh, with the appearance of a single take with rope. I think there was a horror film called Silent House that that tried to uh, uh, accomplish the same thing. And there have been several films that have had long tracking sequences that, that, that go through, you know, several minutes and follow characters through very complicated Backdrops and scenery. Yeah. What was it? What did you find useful from the past as you uh, you know uh, try to yes. try a new course with this film?
3: No, I mean I you know there's a lot of films I've seen that come to mind. I mean there's a, a great long tracking shot that's actually a piece of film history and Red Badge of Courage. You know mm-hmm. that John Huston did that was for its time a really exceptional shot that it's only thought of as an exceptional shot when you analyze the movie it's not something that you know jumps out at you at the moment you're watching the movie mm-hmm. which is the trick really and we didn't we didn't really we didn't look at any other film mm-hmm. sam and i didn't look at any other films just in terms of referencing how we were going to approach it i mean it was just very much its own piece you know i mean it's a very specific story and uh, uh, to to tell and I think what influenced me more than anything is the way Sam and I worked together on Mhm. I mean, I'm sure that wasn't one take or anything, but it was the same intensity, and we wanted the same kind of idea of being with a character, seeing the world from that character's point of view. You know, in this mm-hmm. case, two characters, but in Jihad, the, 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 the 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 one major character, mm-hmm. you know, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. You know, that that... To me was um the thing that um you know was a basis i think for the way we worked on this really sam said
2: he and his co-writer christy would would um come up with ideas and then you know present them to you and leave them in, in a sense for you to solve the problem uh, at least that's sort of how he characterized it when we did our q a uh the first weekend they began showing the film what were some of the obvious things that jumped out to you just from reading their words on the page uh, about what was going to be especially challenging
3: for you it's not really like that because every scene's challenging whether it's you know the scene in the basement and the Mm -hmm. destroyed town with the girl and the baby i mean it's challenging everything's challenging for different reasons Mm. i mean the way it worked is that, you know, we did a lot of rehearsals and, and the yes, the, the, the basis was the script, but how do you visualize the script? And that was done um, through rehearsing with the actors and mm-hmm. figuring out the kind of look of the sets, the length of the trenches, you know. So it wasn't a case of them sort of <laughs> handing over to me this set of problems. It wasn't like that. <laughs> I mean, I was, guess he was joking yeah, a little bit crucial. when he said that. Yeah. No, yeah, but it's crucial to realize that the, what he was saying at that point was what was important was to figure out what we wanted to show the audience and how we wanted to show the audience that this experience these two soldiers were having. Mm-hmm. We didn't think of it as a technical from a technical perspective. That's what he was mm-hmm. saying. That was That's what's really important to understand. You're not thinking, oh, how do we get the camera to cross the canal? That's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, where do we want the camera to be? What is the shot? That's what you always do when you approach a film, whether you see rehearsals or not. I mean, that's what you're trying to... You know, you take the script and interpret it visually. You don't think about the difficulty of doing any particular shot. Because... You know, once you know what you want to do with the camera, once you know how you're, you're describing it with images, then, then you can work out how you do mm-hmm. it. That's something that's a technical challenge. And, you know, there's a lot of very experienced people that I work with. And um, I had a lot of time to prep and look at different equipment and test different equipment and figure out, you know, which piece of equipment fitted... Each particular part of the story, mm-hmm. and and then it was all—it's all, it's all cr- so crucial where how we broke up the story into its separate elements. I mean, the certain scenes you wanted to do in one because of the performance, because of what was happening, but there's other scenes, other sections which is a journey, where you know, technically it's possible to do some part of it with one piece of equipment, but then you need to change to another piece of equipment to to get the optimum kind of uh, shot. Mm -hmm. So all these things had to be worked out. But I say it was a sort of long process, but it starts with, you know, conceptualization of the look or the feel of the film and then rehearsing to get more detailed kind of idea of what you wanted to do with a camera, what's what's the important moments to see, which is not different than you do on any film.
2: Hmm. Let me put it a different way then. Was there something in the script by Sam and and Christy Wilson Cairns that that just excited you, that you thought, I can't wait to apply some creativity to this, I can't wait to shoot this and create this image?
3: Well, I'm a bit of a history buff. I mean. you know, the First World War is quite a significant thing in, in uh, British history. It certainly is mm-hmm. to me. I mean, obviously, although I was born after the Second World War. My father was in the Second World War and in, in, in some in, uh, incredible experiences he had in the Second World War. And, um, you know, I'm from Devon in southern England. And you go in any big, small village or town in, in Devon, and there'll be a memorial cross in a village square, and there'll be all these names of the people that died, especially in the First World War, because it was that kind of war. And sometimes you'll see the same surname six or seven times in the same little village. Six or seven people from the same family were killed in that war on this one little village, and that's I say that's everywhere in the country. Yeah. And you know, you you brought up seeing that, and so. It actually was something that I've always been fascinated in. Why did that happen and stuff? So, I mean, when Sam told me he was, you know, thinking of doing this project and sent me the script, then, yeah, I mean, of course I was excited.
2: Yeah. We talk so much about the cameras and the equipment and and how you work with your tools. How many takes would you estimate you did on on average
3: uh, for any given sequence? Um, it it varied between probably twelve and thirty, or really? maybe even, uh, yeah, you know. And the takes the takes that are in the movie also varied from you know being number one of the last take in the film is the first take we did of that particular part mm-hmm. of the sequence, um, and sometimes it was much later.
2: Was it was it always a matter of did you know when you had it right? Were all of those takes due to well we didn't quite nail it that time let's try it again uh, there was a mistake oh, or something no, or were you it, looking it, for it, variation the, um...
3: Sam was looking uh, no Sam was looking for the perfect take I don't there wasn't a matter of variation it was a matter of about finding the right chemistry the right moments with the actors just the, the sort of the other kind of you know, the unspecific things that happen when you shoot I mean that's sort of of wonderful about shooting just things happen you know it doesn't matter how much you've prepped it and how much you know what the shot is and the actors know exactly what the line is and they rehearsed it but there's things that happen and you just go wow that was really good that was it and and quite often at the end of a take we'd you know come out of our little tents or vans where we're operating from and Sam's watching his monitor and people come out and go Wow, that was it, <laughs> you know. And then, but then we might go on and do some more takes because we might we might say, well, okay, we've got one that's really good. Let's see where mm-hmm. it can go, you know. some very much likes to say, oh, I, I've got a take. Maybe take five was good. Let's try and see if we get another one. See what see what comes, you know, because it's not something that's, you know, it's it's a very sort of fluid thing, and it's. Uh,
2: that's what I meant about yeah. variation. Yeah. It's, it's, those it's, moments, you know,
3: those moments. Yes, it's, it's yes, it's variation, but it's something more than that. So it's just those unexpected kind of bits of chemistry and lucky, you know, lucky moments that happen. You
2: know, you mentioned the the night shoot, and one of the most dazzling sequences in the film takes place in a in a destroyed town, and yeah. George McKay's character Schofield is running as flares are going off. There's Fire! A church is burning in the center of town, and um, there's almost this dance of shadow. The way the the way the the, the sparks illuminate the uh, yeah uh, the, the broken the, walls. Yeah. They kind of swivel and swirl around him. Uh, I, I wondered if you could talk about the how you composed that sequence and and what effect you were hoping to create in the mind of the viewer.
3: Well, I think the Sam and I talked about this. It's um, you know Schofield has been knocked out, and it's like we wanted a feeling of a kind of nightmare, I suppose. We wanted mm-hmm. it to be quite surreal, because it's like you don't know where you are, and is it, is it is it reality or not? You know, is it Schofield's dream, his nightmare? You know, you, you, you just want that kind of surreal, kind of suspenseful kind of feel to it. So we talked about this, and Sam, in the script, it was like he wanted these flares, as though the Germans in the town were firing off flares because they knew somebody was around and then, it, then it's a discussion well okay so the flares come up and light it but what else is there and what else do we want to see and then we really set on the idea that the flare would be the only light mm-hmm. for the certain part of the journey and there would be periods of darkness I was I was quite keen that it would go into absolute blackness and then you would just hear the sound of Schofield's breathing and his footsteps in the darkness so that's you know that's what we went for, and then and then it's a sort of just a sort of technical challenge to how you make that work. You know, obviously, we mapped out the length of the run before the set was, you know, the set was constructed, and then we we uh, I think as Sam was saying, we had a model. Dennis Gasner and the art department create this quite large model that then you know we could put all the broken walls in. And we could show where the camera was going to be we could put in little LEDs to mimic the flares and how far they where the cranes that was holding the flares would be on the site and then just the timing and and, and then we could figure out also, where we wanted shadows. Mm-hmm. So what? where did we want a high structure? Where did we want the light to create this shadow? How was that going to work? You know, where? where is the graveyard? Where is the fence of the graveyard? So you get the shadow of the fence going across. You know, all these things were, were quite meticulously worked out with the art department. and um, And then in the town, you have this big burning church. So that had to be aligned to where Schofield comes into the colonnade, um, and originally that wasn't a colonnade, so it's like, okay, well, we've got this light, so if we have a colonnade, then you're going to have the shadows and darkness of of what you get from a colonnade. You know, so all those things, all these angles had to be worked out, and where we had a solid structure, where we had a gap, you know, so that the light would kind of seep through and, and Schofield would be lit at the right moments or silhouetted at another moment you know
2: i thought this was one of the more fascinating things that sam and you discussed at our q a yeah. was the idea that dennis gassner builds the town he builds it in its entirety it, as it would have been standing and then you figured out where schofield would run and he knocked out Houses and structures and walls,
3: so that the burning I mean, church. He did that as a model. Yeah, yeah. He did. He didn't build the whole town for real. He designed it as a in a, as a in a three D model. That's what I meant. Yeah, as a, a real was, town. Yeah, modeled then, it that way. And yeah, and then then he built a physical model mm-hmm. that we could work with, and then we could sort of say, well, this wall can be higher, and this wall needs to be more destroyed. Mm-hmm. You know, and then we molded the the physical model because we had a you know we had a light that mimicked what the church was yeah. and so we had a rough idea but even even after the the whole entire set was built for real on the backlot we did then have to also adapt the structure cuz however you do it on the model it's not exactly right. the same as the real thing so with them we, then we we knock down some walls for real, and then built other walls <laughs> to mold the real light that we had on the actual set. On the you know,
2: I th- just thought yeah. that was fascinating. That you had to conceive at least the real town, yeah. uh, and, and then of course you build the set is the ruins. But you have to f- build it in order to tear it down as yeah. a model, and then build build the actual set out of the the remains of that. And the the burning church uh, is a that's a bit of a, uh, a movie magic trick you said the flames are added digitally and, and Sam said the lighting rig that you created to mimic the flames of this burning holy place looked like the starship from Close Encounters uh, of the Third Kind with all of its many lights can you describe
3: what you constructed uh, there? I think it was a bit bigger than that Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> no it was um, it was 60 feet by 30 feet on its base and it was 50 foot high, it was five tiers of light, and it was like a big oval shape. I said 60 by 30, big oval shape, 50 feet high. I had to do it so the light could be stronger in certain places because, for instance, when he goes to the schoolhouse where he fights with the young German soldier and kills the young German soldier, it's still lit by that, even though you're on a kind of interior, it's still lit by that same element. So again, the schoolhouse, the windows had to be designed to allow in the light to light the scene, and uh, it also had to be designed at an angle so the fight's actually in shadow, and they're silhouetted against the streaks of light coming in from the windows beyond them, if you like. you know. And it had to be designed that when he runs out that door, having killed the German, when he runs out the door, he comes out the door and then you look in square at the church again as he comes out the door. And then he runs down the street 90 degrees and he's sidelit again. So kind of all those things had to be worked out. And so there had to be more intense parts of this one big lighting structure to light those, mm. you know, the, the most important pieces of this the sequence.
2: The last thing I want to ask you about is a, is a scene that's not the end, but it's near the end when we approach a group of resting soldiers and someone is singing a song, singing a spiritual wayfaring stranger. And you talked about the nightmarish aspect of the night sequence. And we went also through a a kind of hellish experience where he plunges into a river and is swept along, which I assume came with uh, quite a few challenges of its own there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But right after that, there's this moment of peace. And I wondered if you could talk about creating... That sense of peace, there's a slowness. There's so much pace, so much quick pace to this movie. But at this point, he approaches uh, with a kind of stillness and, yeah. and trepidation.
3: Yeah. Well, that, that scene based on a true contemporary account of um, a group of soldiers. Actually, it was a piano and the group of soldiers were around somebody playing the piano and they were singing. And they were off the, behind the front line ready to go to attack. Uh, so it's like a true kind of true story and then Sam decided to make it this one particular traditional folk song um, And we wanted that Again, that's a kind of surreal moment and you wanted to discover it, but slowly So you, at first he hears the singing when he's down by the river And we deliberately didn't we wanted to stay behind him, but not actually know what was happening We didn't even want to see the singer until he slouches down against the tree and at that point then we come off his back and go towards the singer and then it was important to see all the young guys' faces as they're you know, waiting to go to their death maybe so that's why we created that kind of continuous curving shot around the faces and the singer and then coming back through the faces and finding Schofield again where he's slouched down by the tree you know so it's it's kind of like any film you you're looking for the important beats of a scene what do i need to show the audience what's important here what yeah you know what what are the crucial things that i have to capture and but in this case obviously you've got to join them all together in some sort of fluid shot so Just something that came to mind and just, yeah, you know, that's, that's, Mm -hmm. it just felt right. You know what I mean? It's just an instinctive kind of reaction to, yeah, something you have in your mind, I guess.
2: Obviously, you've worked with, uh, with Sam Mendes going back many years. Uh, You've worked with uh, the production designer, Dennis Gassner, many, many times going back to the Coen Brothers films. Yeah. Uh, I know you've worked with your crew you know for for decades now. yeah my gaffer uh,
3: yeah my gaffer on this film i worked with john higgins i worked with him on 1984 oh, wow. in 1984 so that's how long we go wow uh, my focus follow i've been working with for 30 years as well andy harris so.
2: could you have accomplished this movie if you didn't have those deep ties and that comfortableness in working so closely with a filmmaker and people in other departments and your own crew over the course of decades
3: that's hard to say I, I i i don't i don't think so but i know i don't know there's a lot of very you know talented crew people there but um i mean it, it definitely makes such a difference when you've had have this relationship with people and there's a certain trust that builds up and it, yeah i mean i think it's crucial i mean i wouldn't say that there's the sole crew in the world that could have done this film um, i'm certainly not the sole cameraman in the world that Done this film, but there's certainly the combination of all of us together. I think. Well, it is, yeah, what it is. Yeah. You know what I, mean?
2: <laughs> I guess. I guess. I assume there would be some. Uh, you know each other's skills. You know each other's perhaps weaknesses. Yeah, but, how to know, fill but, in and.
3: Yeah, know. but uh, you know, I mean, to, to go into some yeah. of the operators. I mean, Peter Cavacuzzi was who was shooting Steadicam, which is a conventional mm-hmm. kind of rig these days. I mean, he did some crucial cam shots. I've worked with him since I was doing Eric Clapton videos back in the early, late 70s, <laughs> early 80s, I guess. Uh, you know, so he's somebody I've known for years, but Charlie Rezik, who was doing operating this Trinity rig, which is like a cam but it's like a little jib arm, I met him for the first time as we were prepping this film and... and working with different pieces of equipment to figure out how we wanted to approach it. You know, I met him for the first time and we just hit it off and I thought, you're perfect. He'd never worked on a feature film before. And I said, will you come and work on this film? And he was like, he, I think he nearly <laughs> collapsed. He was so he was so pleased. I mean, yeah, and he did brilliant work. So, you know, those, the people are, are there. It's just that you bring... People with, I don't know, with your own sensibility, I suppose. Sometimes you connect with people, don't you? And you just, you just, it brings a, a kind of way of working together, uh, yeah. you know, something that you can't really be specific about, but it's, um, it, it does make a difference just working with people that um, are just friends. So even if you've only just met them mm-hmm. a few weeks previously, you can say they're friends, you know?
2: Exactly. Well, it sounds like also a mix of, of deep experience and also innovation and and, yes. and new talents and new technology and skills. Yeah, I mean,
3: there was a lot of new technology. I mean, again, the camera was the first time this camera was used. We were actually working with prototypes of this actual camera. You know, in some of the rigs, the uh, main stabilizing head that we had called a stabilize is very, very new piece of equipment, you know. So it's it was a it was a wonderful combination about with you know, guys with a lot of experience and guys with new pieces of equipment and you know, bring it all together. It's fun.
2: That's the most important part. Roger Deegans, thanks for talking to us about nineteen seventeen.
3: Hey, it's my pleasure.
0: Okay, Anthony, uh, now we've shared our interviews. We're going to go off and rejoin our families for our holiday breaks. Um, you'll be back on the next episode because we're going to have our Golden Globes predictions airing um, right after the new year. So uh, never fear. Anthony, will be back on Little Gold Men before you know it. Uh, <laughs> thank you for letting us wrangle you
2: happy to be here it's a lot of fun to be on the show
0: <laughs> um so anyway uh we'll be back next week uh and then back in full gear uh after the holiday break uh you can find us on twitter at little Gold men and on our own i'm at katie rich and anthony
2: i'm at bresnikan
0: this episode was edited and produced by brett fuchs and merry christmas and happy new year